0: Hi, I'm Derek Barry, and this is Glossolalia. Glossolalia. I had to Google that word before I said it out loud, which is always a good name for a podcast, a word or phrase that is extremely difficult to pronounce. Rejected podcast names include Epizuxis, Epithelmium, Hyperbatin, and Anacruxis. This is a podcast about creative writing, and it will include interviews, audio essays, and creative prompts. This episode is an audio essay, which is a fancy term for a narrative that also teaches a lesson about writing, but through some unexpected avenue. You might be thinking, Derek, didn't you already have a podcast that fizzled out because you were too burned out to produce anything meaningful? And to that I say... Shut your clown knob, you petulant swamp hag. This episode has been brought to you by the swamp hag, whose shrill cry lures men to their murky deaths in the bog. This episode has also been brought to you by Hank's Hot Dog Emporium, the best chili dog this side of Mudlet Creek. Hank's Hot Dog Emporium. Glossolalia is a fancy boy word for speaking in tongues, which is the act, according to Wikipedia, in which people speak in languages unknown to them. One definition used by linguists is the fluid vocalizing of speech-like syllables that lack any readily comprehended meaning, in some cases as part of religious practice in which it is believed to be a divine language unknown to the speaker. According to another website, Purporting to be the top resource for understanding the Christian Bible, speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift, through which a vessel of God shouts in an unknown language that, although not understood, edifies the soul. The first time I experienced firsthand, the phenomenon was at a chastity camp in the mountains of North Carolina. The camp lasted five days during which we marched each sunrise to the top of a steep mountain to partake in worship singing, then endured two-hour-long lectures on the importance of abstinence. At the time, I was in ninth grade, and I had tagged along with a youth group because I had a crush on the daughter of the youth group leader. What can I say in my defense? I was young. I was a wayward heathen and still experimenting with institutionalized faith the youth group, belonged to a charismatic church I had attended a few times with the daughter, and I had never experienced such a church before. Non-denominational and diverse, the Sunday morning church services included a fully equipped rock band, a multi-colored light show, and a sermon that doubled as stand-up comedy. I was slightly aghast, having grown up In first, a fundamentalist Southern Baptist church, then later, attending a megachurch. More on that in a future episode. What shocked me about the service was that people were truly ecstatic to be at church. During the sermon, they shouted out, Amen! They raised their arms while singing. They were enthusiastic, which is not what I thought you were supposed to do in a church. Church was something you suffered through, so that later you could forgive yourself for eating three plates of macaroni and cheese at the Golden Corral. Because I liked a girl, and because I was very stupid, I agreed to go to Chastity Camp. The camp, of course, was not called Chastity Camp, but instead, True Love Waits. The basic premise, as far as I could tell, was that if a man and a woman could wait until marriage to have sex, then the Holy Spirit would enter the wedding bed to ensure that their sex would be the best sex ever. Only Christians who had abstained could experience the true pleasures of sex, and the heathens who had been humping each other before marriage experienced only a paltry, sad, unpleasurable version of this sacred act. After a few days, I started to believe this, because it felt good to believe. That somehow Christian sex was inevitably better, though I admit I was nervous about the idea of getting the Holy Ghost involved in in the whole sex business. The camp was also non-denominational, like the church and the teens who attended the camp were enthusiastic. Uh, perhaps they were not super stoked about abstinence, but they were excited about the prospect of good in the boundaries of marriage sex. So all throughout the singing, the preaching, the pastoring, teens were throwing up their arms like they were on their first roller coaster. During one of these sessions of ecstatic praise, I heard a strange sound, a glottal utterance, the kind of sound someone makes when they're dying or about to throw up Everclear at a frat party. If you only overheard the phrases issuing from this person's mouth, you might mistake them for another language, just some language you've never heard spoken aloud, or perhaps the kind of gibberish old actors would mutter when pretending to speak in a language they did not actually know. A grown man, his hair thinning and paunch substantial, had flailed into the center of the aisles, his mouth agape. After a few moments, the singing faltered, then paused, only the adamant drummer pushing the tempo forward, hi-hat, hi-hat snare, he turned his face toward heaven and spoke. After this brief seizure of faith, the man collapsed and the other adults rushed to him. They helped him to his feet, laughing, clapping him on the back. The man looked around, pale-faced and sweating, as if he had just woken up from a flu-sick fever dream. Looking back, it's easy to dismiss this moment as delusion. Easy to create some narrative about the man and his belief and the power of that belief. Who has not, after all, witnessed the strange and sometimes awful acts men will commit because of their belief? And is it not simple to believe this was also a minor occurrence of zealotry? But at the time, 14, Steeped four days in a chastity camp, I believed I had witnessed, for the first and only time, a true miracle. I didn't understand until an adult explained later the gifts of the Spirit. One such gift was speaking in tongues, to vocalize in the language of angels. I asked whether the man had understood what he had said, but the adult said no. Surely not. That was another gift, the gift of interpretation, discernment. Had I understood the man, had I somehow unknowingly translated the language of angels, I tried to recall the sounds the man had made, rework them into words, and it is easy, in the clear room of memory, to reconfigure a moment, to understand completely what before was incomprehensible such a fallibility of remembering, that we can impose a narrative where there is not. I must have been writing poetry at 14, though it's difficult to recall what I wrote about. I was mostly writing novels at the time, longhand and spiral-bound notebooks about Victorian vampires, the stories of whom were lifted in plagiaristic fashion from Anne Rice. But I must have also written poetry, likely strange poetry about shame and fear and sadness, typical emo teen imagery, guillotines and blood and bats and bodies and tears and blood. At 16, I discovered the local poetry open mic at a Cuban restaurant in downtown Aiken. There, I tried for the first time a Cuban sandwich and reading poems aloud in front of other people. At the time, I wasn't really going to any sort of church before, so this became the church. So I would show up twice a month, and it wasn't because I liked some girl or because I felt obligated to be there, but rather because I had inherited this strange faith, this set of beliefs that still sustains me today. Poetry is, in some forms, a rigorous expression of through language. But there is a reason poets often write the phrase, this is to say. We name the distance between meaning and metaphor, indicate the gap between the real and represented. This is to say, language has a limited capacity to communicate the human condition. A poem is an asymptote. To experience, coming as close as possible without truly representing that experience. Consider even the word representation, how it is re-presentation, the re-creation of a scene rather than the scene itself. In this way, I think poetry is spiritual. When we write poetries, we can only hope to speak in tongues. We rely on the reader or listener to interpret the poems To process the incomprehensible sounds issuing from our mouths In a poem, we are sucker-punched parishioners Toppled to the floor and shaking with the faith of true believers Blathering what we hope is profound to someone else's ear Perhaps you have felt it too That holiness How poetry becomes a church you visit more than once a week How we don't focus on just one holy book, but every holy book, every holy poem someone brings to an open mic or publishes in a journal or includes in a book, every text we might read and devour and decipher and embrace and splatter across our hearts. In many religions, we mimic rituals to keep us in line with religious doctrine. Creativity includes its own rituals whether they be pedestrian, or sacred, profane, or sacrament. Yes, it is a solace to read a poem and to understand the person who wrote that poem was a human being. That they felt real pain like your pain. That you're not alone. It is not the language of angels we are after, but the language of other people. It is a holy moment to close your eyes, lean forward, and try to understand. In the coming episodes, I want to try to understand. I want to try to interpret when people speak in tongues. We will read poems and discuss poems and talk with poets about their lives and what sort of unnameable things we can try to name and when we're done and when we're all pale-faced and sick looking we'll gather around that fallen person after they've spoken the words they don't quite understand and rejoice thank you for listening uh my name is derek berry and this is glossolalia you can look forward to this feed Um, Every other week, we will include an audio essay, um, which is like this one, a creative prompt, or a conversation with someone in the uh, creative writing community. If you want to learn more, you can go to DerekBerryWriter.com. That's D-E-R-E-K-B-E-R-R-Y-W-R-I-T-E-R.com. And if you like this and want to help out, uh, the best thing you can do is leave a review on iTunes, and then share this episode with some friends. Um, And if you listen to a lot of episodes, then you can go back and find your favorite episode and share that. I'll talk to you in two weeks. Until then, I hope that you'll be thinking about what sort of spaces you make sacred and what sort of language you can bring into that space, and also what it means to not necessarily understand language and to understand the limitations of that language. Um, And, you know, does that make a space holy? And um, if not, how can we make our literary spaces also holy spaces? Um, And if that kind of language, that kind of religiously charged language, you know, disturbs you um, to investigate why and to think of what alternatives you might have.